Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is Keen on Democracy. A chill is enveloping the world. Everywhere I go these days, the conversation is the same. Everyone is fearful about the fate of democracy in our digital age. The same worried question is on all of our lips. What or who is killing democracy? Everybody wants to know. There's certainly no lack of suspects. Trump, Putin's trolls, Mark Zuckerberg, authoritarian populism, the wall, Victor Urban, fake news, Brexit, Bolsonaro, surveillance capitalism, Erdogan, Twitter, or last but certainly not least, the president of the People's Republic of China, Xi Jinping. So what's up with democracy these days? Is it really dying? Or is it simply shedding its industrial analog skin and updating itself for our networked digital age? That's the subject of this podcast series. This is a show featuring conversations about the most important issue of our age with some of the world's most incisive thinkers. I hope it both provokes and enlightens. Uh, Jeffrey Winters, uh, Professor of Political Science at uh, Northwestern University and the author of Oligarchy, uh, award-winning book on oligarchy. Where better to start, Jeffrey, than oligarchy? Define it for me. What does this word mean? So oligarchy refers to um, people who are empowered by wealth. So there are many things that can make people powerful. They can have access to coercion. They can have a capacity to mobilize large numbers of people. Um, wealth is a form of power. It's a power resource. And when that power resource is concentrated into few hands, it produces a group of people who are highly focused on maintaining their fortune and wealth. And so therefore, they engage in something called what I call the politics of wealth defense. And throughout history, um, those who are tremendously wealthy have faced various threats from below, from those who have nothing, from other oligarchs, which is actually one of the biggest sources of threat in history. So if you think of the medieval period, if you have a large amount of land and you want to get richer, you take over the adjoining um, piece of land. And then with the rise of modern states, the state itself is a potential threat. It can extract from very wealthy people, it can redistribute. So oligarchs throughout history have faced a problem of wealth defense. And so... But your definition of wealth is quite a, quite a broad one. It's not just economic wealth, it's cultural wealth, it's symbolic wealth, it's religious wealth. Um, <clears throat> no, it's actually my definition is quite material. So um, we're literally talking about... Um, Wealth throughout history, which has been in various forms, it might be in the form of land, it might be in the form of peasantry who work on the land, it might be mines. In today's world, it's highly financialized. And so the point you raise is an important one, which is the form of wealth is extremely important for understanding oligarchy. Why? Because the number one challenge for oligarchs is to convert their wealth power into political influence. And it's very hard to convert a thousand head of cattle, if that happens to be the form of your wealth, into political influence. But money is highly fungible. In today's highly financialized world, we are at the apex of oligarchic power. So what does oligarchy sound like if it has a, a soundtrack? Is it the sound of money? Um, yeah, it's the sound of money. Um, 
oligarchy is um, it's greed mixed with fear, mixed with aggressive defense. And what's the difference between your definition of oligarchy and plutocracy? Um, plutocracy, I believe, is actually a word which is um, synonymous with, with oligarchy. So an oligarchy and a plutocracy are essentially the same thing? Yes, it, it, it's essentially the idea that um, wealth is at the core of the political project. Right? That is the core project. Now, oligarchs differ on a whole range of issues. Some support abortion, some are supportive of various kinds of rights for women and so on. But the one thing they all agree on is that redistributing their wealth is unacceptable. So your definition of power is one always rooted in wealth. There's no power without wealth, no political power without wealth. No, no. One form of power is wealth, and that is specifically the realm of oligarchs. Meanwhile, there are other forms of power. For example, the capacity to mobilize people on a massive basis. So, for example, Gandhi had no money, he had no official position, but he could move millions of people. He was tremendously powerful, therefore. So, I start from the question, what makes people tremendously powerful? I might, for example, be a warlord who um, has access to coercive power on a massive scale. I can intimidate and fight. I might not yet be rich, People follow me out of fear because of my coercive power. So power comes in many forms, including office. So for example, on January 20th, every uh, four or eight years, someone is sworn into the presidency of the United States. Their power goes from being relatively low to massive because the office itself is empowering. So power comes in various forms. The form that is rooted in wealth is oligarchic power and the politics of it are distinct. So is democracy by definition the antithesis of oligarchy? It absolutely is not. Um, so many people think that if you increase democracy, oligarchy will decrease as if they are zero sum with each other. But if we follow the definition I just gave, which is concentrated wealth is the source of oligarchic power, then Actually, as long as the democratic system tolerates incredibly concentrated wealth, there is no clash between democracy and oligarchy. So, in your analysis at least, would you suggest that, say since 1989, we've had this convergence of oligarchy and democracy in the world? Absolutely. So, uh, you know, we have to start from an understanding that every democracy that exists in the world today is a stratified democracy. That is, we live in the most unequal societies ever to have existed in human history. And what's unusual about this is that we are about 250 years into the democratic experiment in the modern era. And the unusual thing is that over that 250 years, wealth inequality has increased, not decreased. So actually, oligarchic power has risen as democracy has spread. The two actually are joined together. And in fact, I would describe our democracies today as um, democracies that are captured and dominated by oligarchs, but they are still democracies. So you, you have a rather dark definition of democracy. Um, I, I, 
<laughs> we, we, we live in an era where um, the nature of our choices, we have choice in our democratic societies, but our choices are severely constrained by the interests of oligarchs. So for example, um, much of our agenda, the choices that we get to choose among, are heavily influenced by money power and wealth power. And this is increasing as the cost of running is becoming more and more expensive. So as campaigns become longer and more expensive, the power of oligarchs is actually accentuated in democracy. It's much more difficult for candidates to emerge, to rise without money. And they either have to have their own money or they have to have people with money who back them. Um, that's the nature of the democracies we live in. Free to speak, free to struggle, um, Competitive elections in which the outcomes are not known in advance, but constrained by the boundaries set by oligarchs. How would you, how, how would America then uh, be made sense of in your theory, given that much of the wealth, the huge concentration of wealth in the country lies on the coast in Silicon Valley in New York, and much of that wealth is actually extremely hostile to Trump and the current so-called political oligarchy running the country? Um, first of all, I think it's important to understand that both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party are completely funded by and dominated by oligarchs. So neither party is hostile to the fundamental interests of oligarchs. So, um, But are you saying then that by definition, if you have money, if you invest in political parties, you're pursuing your own interest. Isn't that somewhat uh, deterministic? I mean, some people are wealthy and they want to improve the lot of other people, don't they? Um, they, they do. There are people who are philanthropic. George Soros, for example. Yeah. Um, he he yeah. clearly isn't putting his money into organizations in Central Europe to increase his own wealth. Um, but people like Bill Soros. Gates. Yeah, but people like Soros are are um, oligarchs in the sense that Bill Gates, Soros, Buffett, all these people employ something I call the wealth defense industry. This industry is made up of lawyers, accountants, lobbyists, whose job it is to make sure that Soros, Buffett, Gates, and the rest of them don't pay taxes. Then, with the money that they are able to withdraw from the system, they deploy it in ways that they want to. So power and control over the resources is very important to them. And are they doing this consciously? Absolutely. Absolutely. They know exactly what they're doing. They know who they're hiring. Um, they hire these people to use a global um, geography of offshore secrecy locations to make sure that I pay my full tax bracket and they don't. Now, so they, you're essentially saying that wealthy people are bad, immoral? Um, no, I'm saying... They are highly focused on defending their wealth. That what, is crucial to them. Uh, and isn't that rational? Isn't by definition everyone, everyone pursues their own interests? If you happen to have a lot of money, you're obviously going to pursue strategies that benefit your own resources. Yeah, you, you, you make a good point, which is that um, a lot of people think that if you're poor, you actually focus on economic issues a lot. Um, but that's actually not the case. The wealthy focus much more on their wealth and their material position than the poor do. So a fortune is a very concentrating, focusing sort of thing. It's, of course, rational for people to defend their wealth. 
But again, remember, we're talking about democratic societies. And in a democratic society, one of the questions is, why, as a matter of policy, do we not um, pass policies democratically where the many say that we are going to um, redistribute and create opportunities for the many and not have the rich, rich be as rich as they are? And the answer is, it's extremely difficult to pursue policies like that. Well, but again, let me suggest two arguments against mm -hmm. your position. Mm -hmm. Firstly, a lot of wealthy people are in favor of changing the estate tax so that they're much more significantly taxed. Doesn't that again reflect the fact that they're not always pursuing their own interests? And secondly, and perhaps mm -hmm. more importantly, mm -hmm. how would you explain poor people's support of oligarchs like Trump in which their interests aren't really being pursued? Yeah, these are First of all, those are two huge questions we have to take. So let's deal with one at a time. So yeah, deal with the first question about yeah. the estate tax. Yeah. So on the estate tax, it's it's fascinating to have um, a set of oligarchs write columns in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal saying tax us. The hypocrisy of it is all of these people, and I can prove it, use the wealth defense industry to not be taxed. So they're saying one thing publicly, they're positioning and they're posturing, um, while they are doing something else. Also, any one of them can right now triple the tax payments they're making. They don't do so. Also, and this is very important, the entire right-wing think tank industry, which has produced the notion of the death tax instead of the estate tax, is funded by oligarchs. Oligarchs have not funded anything remotely close on the opposite side of the ledger that would lead to ideas and ideologies that would undo oligarchy. Not one of them has done so. So the entire weight of what they're doing ideologically, practically, and so on, is wealth defense. That's what they're doing in reality. So come on to the issue of why many working class people support Some the oligarchs of one kind or another, particularly it seems in the United States, at least, uh, Trump, who I would assume is your, your classic He's an example oligarch. of an oligarch. Yeah, yeah. He's an oligarch. Um, Trump is a, is a very complex phenomenon, um, but I think it's important to realize that um, one of the reasons people, and, and I've talked to many, many uh, people in the United States who are working class people, including in my own family, and what they like most about Trump um, is that he was never accepted as an elite, he was always an outsider, and he's seen as somebody who is sticking it to the system. He's, that's the way he's interpreted. The more unpresidential he acts, the more popular he is. Because the interpretation of the average American is that the system screws them. The elites screw them. The Democrats have been screwing them for decades. So their view is the system doesn't work for them, and you believe that too. I mean, that seems to be the core of Europe. Well, I mean, we're in a situation where 10 years ago, you needed 150 wealthy Americans to equal the total wealth of the bottom 50% of the society. That's 152 million people. Today, three individuals have as much wealth in the United States as the entire bottom half. Who are they? Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, and Warren Buffett. Three individuals have as much wealth as the entire bottom half of the United States population. And that is only in the last 10 years. So what we are living in is a time of hollowing out of the middle, 
precariousness on the bottom, and concentration of wealth at the top, which is grotesque and unprecedented. Jeffrey, I assume you want to detach democracy and oligarchy. I assume that you would like to see a democracy uh, that is responsive that to the many. In, that, that, would, that, that could exist without outside the sort of the, the framework of, of, of oligarchy. How do we do that? Well, first of all, um, eliminating oligarchs is a fantasy. Why? Because we are not going to eliminate extreme wealth concentration anytime soon. And if the source of oligarchs is extreme wealth concentration, it's with us to stay. But the secondary question is, um, we can create systems that greatly facilitate the ability of oligarchs to use their power, or we can diminish that. So let me give you um, some examples. Um, something very concrete. We could limit the time of campaigns so that campaigns don't cost as much, so that oligarchs are not able to dominate who can become a candidate. We can fund campaigns in ways that limit the ability of oligarchs to be able to contribute. We can um, make the offshore secrecy world where trillions, tens of trillions of dollars are actually stored, we can make that a national security issue and say all offshore um, funds will be onshore and will be transparent and known and taxed. So there are many, many things we could do to wrestle the beast to the ground. What about just increasing taxes? Um, increasing taxes is a, is a great idea. The problem is that the ability to move your resources to where um, uh, tax agencies cannot reach them and cannot see them, that capacity exists for oligarchs and it doesn't exist for ordinary citizens. So part of what I was saying a moment ago, attack the whole secrecy geography um, is a very important thing to do. Um, and taxing becomes possible. But I would take a step further. We need not just an income tax, but we need a wealth tax. And a wealth tax um, is, interestingly, governments around the world track income, but they don't track wealth. Income is seen as something that we must report, but wealth has been defined for us as something which is private. That's not a coincidence. What would be the impact on democracy of a, a serious wealth tax? Um, a serious wealth tax of, let's say, something as modest as just 2% per annum um, would generate enough resources to provide, for example, in the United States, every qualified student with free room and board and tuition to be able to go to a technical or a uh, college of arts and sciences to learn. Easily fund it, um, just with a wealth tax. Um, and that's only the beginning. Um, there are we would be able to provide um, low-cost housing for people who currently live on the streets. Um, our response is to put armrests on benches so that homeless people can't lie down. That's what we do with our tax money instead of actually trying to address the problems. But why would that change the nature of democracy, given that many of the people voting for this current generation of oligarchs, whether it's Trump or Putin, or Orban, or Erdogan, or Duarte, or Bolsonaro, are reasonably well off. 
you're not addressing the, the, the issue of nostalgia, of emotion. I think the fact that we are seeing in multiple places a common phenomenon, which is the rise of right-wing conservative populists, tells us... A, a classic manifestation, in, at least in your definition of oligarchy. Um, it, it, it can be led by oligarchs, but it doesn't have to. I think the people who are responding today come from three places. These leaders are, in some cases, religious figures, imams, for example. They are military intelligence figures, and they are oligarchs. These are the three sources of the major leaders we're seeing. And they're all connected, aren't they? They're somewhat connected, but the thing that they have in common is all of them come from dictatorial institutions. A corporation is a dictatorship. Military and, and uh, intelligence bodies are hierarchical command structures. Same thing with religious institutions. So what all three of these kinds of people have in common is that they don't really value democracy. They find, um, they find it to be an obstacle. They don't value criticism at all, which is why we're seeing this rise of so-called fake news and so on. The attack of people within democracies on one of the fundamental institutions of democracy, which is the media, um, we're seeing it around the world. Now, the fact that we're seeing it in multiple places tells us that part of the source of this problem is globalization itself. Globalization has in its structure over the last 40 to 50 years concentrated wealth upward and it has created precariousness downward. Now, the, the question being asked in every one of these societies is, who should we hate and who should we blame? And the answer to that question is different in each of the societies. It depends on the history and the nature of conflicts in each of those societies. So for example, in the case of Trump, we are a society, and this is the first time this has ever happened. This is the first time either a European or a European transplant society has ever experienced a transformation of becoming minority white. That's what's happening in the United States. Today, kindergarten through 12th grade in the United States is minority white. In 20 years, the country is going to be minority white. The fundamental question in the US case is can you go from being majority white to minority white without fascism? But what's that got to do with oligarchy? It's actually not. Uh, I mean, not everything comes down to oligarchs, but what I'm arguing is that oligarchs are among the three categories of actors who are positioned to step in in this kind of tense politics and offer solutions. So what they offer, for example, in the case of the Czech Republic or in the case of the United States is enough of the political nonsense. I come from a corporation. I'm efficient. I handle money. I've got solutions. And politicians are just corrupt and inefficient and government is the problem. This is the message they come with. Well, you're, you're selling yourself to people who are already disappointed with the status quo. So they're rejecting the status quo players and they go for, they roll the dice and they go for a Trump. In other countries, they go for a Putin, who is a military intelligence guy. Um, in the case of India, they go for Modi, who is a, is, who's a hyper Hindu and so on. Every one of these places, the alternative candidates who are coming forward, these proto-fascist candidates, some from business and oligarchy, some from other quarters, are coming in and they're offering alternatives. People are angry, people are frustrated, and they're fearful. And these actors are responding. 
the left has no answers. Finally, uh, yeah. Jeffrey, you say the left has no answers. You, uh, I think, are on the left. You're talking about a wealth tax. Isn't the challenge of uh, a, a leftist politician who has the charisma of a Modi or a Trump picking up some of your ideas, say, of the wealth tax? Isn't that what's happening in the United States? Uh, Bernie Sanders, perhaps he's not charismatic. Um, but some of the other people running now in the Democratic primaries, isn't the challenge on the left and in terms of deepening, at least in your mind, democracy, the left coming up with strong leaders who embrace radical ideas like the wealth tax? Yeah, and, and in fact, Bernie Sanders, this, this actually came from below in the sense that although the Occupy movement failed fairly quickly, it for the first time in eight decades focused on the question of 1% versus 99%. That had not happened in eight decades in the United States. And they protested in Wall Street, not in Washington. Bernie Sanders is the product of the Occupy movement. He, is, he took advantage of the fact that people began to focus on this, this, this disparity. Um, so I think the politics is there. It's beginning. Um, but... I've studied oligarchs and oligarchy for a long time, and I don't underestimate the power. And, and, and what we see historically is this. If democracy hyperperforms, we said a moment ago that democracy and oligarchy actually can, can um, interact together for quite a long time without conflict. But the conflict arises when democracy hyperperforms and threatens oligarchs. And what we know historically is that when that happens, democracy is the casualty not oligarchs. Now, we've got a real big favour that we need to ask. If you like this episode and you've been enjoying the other interviews, we'd sure love it if you headed over to the iTunes podcast app and leave us a review. If you'd like to hear more episodes, there's a subscribe button there and in all of the platforms like Spotify, Overcast and Google Play. So head over to one of those, subscribe, leave us a review, share it with your friends if you'd like, and we'd appreciate it so much. Be sure to check out our next episode every Thursday. And from all of us at Keenan Democracy, we hope you have a fantastic day.